Welcome to the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. Vintage Church is a multi-church, multi-city movement of truth, love, and community. For information, visit vintagechurchmovement.com. Here is this week's message. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Vintage Church. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. And it is so good to be back. I was gone. I don't know if you realize this, and if you didn't, fantastic. I was gone three Sundays, and uh, I almost didn't come back. I'm not going to lie. The last day, we were there on the beach in Cabo, and I'm just like, I don't know if I want to come back, you know? My kids are fine. They're taken care of. We could just stay, and uh, I could have this tan forever, and it would be awesome. But we came back, and I am excited to be back. Uh, Rachel and I spent uh, our 15th wedding anniversary in Cabo, and uh, yeah, it was a great time, and then we went to Ohio to visit family, and then I made the decision to come back a few days early and do uh, chores, and uh, that was just the most incredible way to wrap up my vacation, painting my house and mowing my jungle, and uh, so we're back, and I'm super excited, and uh, I'm super thankful uh, for you guys, not uh, complaining and being thankful for me and allowing me to take vacation. And I'm thankful for uh, the team of leaders that we have that just kind of step in and lead while others are gone. So uh, week, uh, the first week I was gone, Pastor Matthew Weaver preached, and then uh, Greg Wilton preached uh, the second week, and then Pastor Mark Anthony preached last week. And uh, I just want you to remember... Uh, what a privilege and blessing it is to have so many incredible leaders within our body that uh, can lead, that when one person is gone, the whole thing doesn't blow up. And uh, it's a blessing. Not every church has that. And I don't take that for granted, and I would encourage you uh, to not take that for granted either and to thank the Lord for that, okay? So we are wrapping up our Exodus series. We've been, or we're not wrapping it up, we're wrapping up this iteration. We're in Exodus chapter 17. If you need a copy of God's Word, lift up your hand, and our Connect team would get that for you. And if you uh, turn there, I would ask you to stand, and we're going to read this passage. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Here's what... Moses writes, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword." Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation 
to generation. That is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. want to encourage you, if you're new, you're looking to uh, get more resources, understand more about the book of Exodus, we have all of our resources right here at the link on the screen. Sermon notes, v-group studies, an introduction to the book of Exodus. Uh, you can listen to the last couple of weeks that uh, I haven't been here. Pastor Matthew Weaver talked about the bitter water that God turned uh, sweet for the people of Israel. Greg Wilton came and talked about how uh, God provided manna from heaven even when the people of Israel grumbled. Last week, Pastor Mark Anthony, our arts pastor, talked about water from the rock even when the people of Israel were grumbling. God told Moses, strike the rock and water will come out of the rock. I don't know about you, but before I came back, I listened to all of the messages uh, these past few weeks, and uh, the theme of grumbling came up a lot. <laughs> and I was convicted like, oh boy, do I, do I grumble like the Israelites do? And so we're coming into this story here of Amalek and the Israelites. This is kind of the first major physical barrier that they've come up against going into the promised land. Up to this point, it's been about food and water, and now there are literally people standing before them, preventing them from moving forward. Now, before we jump into this message, I think it's important for you to understand some principles about Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just another way to talk about uh, biblical interpretation and application. Because we read that passage and you might be like, okay, is God telling us to go into holy war this week? Uh, no, he's not, right? I'm not asking you. God is not telling you to pick up your arms and prepare for physical battle. There are some scriptures that when we read them, like these last few weeks, as it, we looked at grumbling and we looked at the Lord providing, where it's like, listen, here's what scripture says, an application is almost one for one. It's almost direct application. God says, don't grumble. Guess what? Good application is, don't grumble. And then we come across some passages like this one, where we're like, well, we're not in a holy war. God's not fighting on our behalf. We're not taking our land. What in the world should we do? Application is a little less direct. And we've got to begin to read all of Scripture and understand the entirety of the context that we're in and we're reading and what God is doing in our midst. And so part of what I wanted to do today is really begin to unfold some of that and help us see the bigger context. What is the application that we can take from this? Where God is telling the people of Israel to fight to take the land. What does it look like for us? So here's some things that I want you to think about. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Acknowledge the enemy. One of the most important things that we can do as followers of Jesus is acknowledge that we have an enemy. Look at what it says at the very beginning of this passage in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. A very simple statement. There was an enemy. Now, you got to know a little bit about this. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. If you remember the biblical story in Genesis, Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And so Amalek was actually a descendant 
from the people of Israel. But the people of Esau had formed their own people group, and the Amalekites were descendants of that group. And the Amalekites here instigate this fight. Now, I think that's important for us to recognize. The people of Israel were not looking for a war. They were simply on their way to the promised land, and there standing before them was a group of people who were wanting to fight them, preventing them from going into what God had promised them. Now, if we acknowledge the enemy, here's what we have to understand as 21st century followers of Jesus Christians. We have to recognize that our enemy is real. Our enemy is not the Amalekites. Believe it or not, contrary to what culture wants to tell you or channel news wants to tell you, we as one another are not our enemies. Our neighbors are not our enemies. Political parties are not our enemies. There is a different enemy that we as followers of Jesus are fighting. And the best way that I can illustrate this is with the matrix. If you've heard me talk about spiritual warfare before, I've used this illustration before, but I think it's the most brilliant way to think about our enemy and to think about spiritual warfare. How many of you have seen the movie The Matrix? I don't care about all the other ones. They're not as good. There's the original, right? The Matrix. So there's this guy and his name is Neo, and he's recognizing that there's more to the world than meets the eye. That, you know, what he sees, he thinks this is reality, but he's recognizing that there's more to it. And so the Matrix is set in this post-apocalyptic world where computers are running the world, and we as humans are just like plugged into the computer, and it's feeding us this alternate reality. Well, there's this other guy in the story named Morpheus. It's Lawrence Fishburne's character. And there's a scene in the movie where Neo and Morpheus are sitting together. And Neo is beginning to recognize that he's on to something, that thing, there's more to this than meets the eye. And Morpheus says this to Neo. He says, this is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. You take the blue pill, everybody know where I'm going with this if you've seen the movie? You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. You and I, we can take the blue pill and we could say, there, you know, all that's before us is what we can see, touch, feel, taste, smell, what we can sense. But that's not reality. Reality is actually taking the red pill and recognizing that there is more than meets the eye, that we have an enemy that we cannot see. An enemy that we cannot touch. An enemy that we cannot necessarily hear. But even though we can't sense the enemy with our five senses, he is real, he is present, and he is dangerous. We have a real enemy that we have to acknowledge. The Apostle Paul understood this. 
Next week, we're going to kick off a brand new series called Saints, and we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians, and we're going to talk more about spiritual warfare when we get to Ephesians chapter 6. But listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is what? What you can see, touch, taste, smell. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is our enemy. The Apostle Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-9. and through, eight through nine. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Look at verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This might seem overly simplistic, but in a culture and in an environment that says, listen, if I can't see it, if I can't hear it, if I can't touch it, if I can't taste it, it doesn't exist. We have to acknowledge that the war we're fighting is a spiritual war. It's an invisible war. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to acknowledge that we do, in fact, have an enemy. The people of Israel, they're standing before the Amalekites. They have to acknowledge what's standing before us is, in fact, an enemy. But it's, just, it's not just that our enemy is real. The second thing that I think we should do is we should trust the Lord. Look at verses 9 through 11 in Exodus 17. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, everybody say tomorrow. tomorrow. Believe it or not, very important word in this story. Tomorrow, I will stand on the top of the hill. Everybody say hill. With the staff, everybody say staff. Staff of God in my hand. There are some key indicators in this story. Encouraging the people of Israel to trust the Lord. And we're going to talk about those in just a moment. Verse 10, So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, here's what we need to understand about the language in this passage. You go back and you look at verse 9 where it says, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill. When Israel heard that, it brought them back to being in Egypt with God promising ten signs or ten plagues. Anytime God would come before Moses or come before Pharaoh and he would introduce a plague, he would say, tomorrow. Saying, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going to judge Egypt tomorrow. So they hear that language and they should be reminded of what God had done in their past so they could trust what the Lord would do in their present. The staff of God 
Moses used this with the ten signs. There were moments when God said, use your staff. If you remember earlier on in the book of Exodus, when God said, hey, as a sign, throw your staff down on the ground and it would become what? A serpent, a snake. When we get to the crossing of the Red Sea, literally Moses holds up his staff and God parts the waters. It's a reminder again of what the Lord has done in the past so the people of Israel could trust the Lord in the present. And then there's this future hint that the people of Israel don't quite know yet that we get to read because we've read the whole story. When God tells Moses to go on top of the hill, it is foreshadowing what God is about to do for the people of Israel. In Exodus 19, just two chapters from now, the people of Israel are going to come to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, they are going to receive God's commandments. God is going to visit them. He is going to be present with them. Foreshadowing, right? I'm about ready to do this. When you see Moses on top of the hill holding up his hands, remember that because I'm going to be on top of a hill delivering my word to you, being with you. All of these things helping build up Israel's trust. Why we should trust the Lord is just as our enemy is real, our Lord is real. We have to acknowledge that our enemy is real. But if we stop there and we don't acknowledge that our Lord is real, we're not truly painting a true picture of what reality is for us. And when we think about how our Lord is real and how we're called to trust the Lord, there's what I want you to get. Trust is built in the past. It's confirmed in the present, and it's anticipated in the future. Think about this for you and I as followers of Jesus. Yes, we have the story of the Exodus, and we can go back and read all of the Old Testament and everything that God has done, but the greatest story of God's faithfulness and our trust in Him is found in whom? Jesus. In the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to earth, Jesus is God, fully God, fully human, came to earth, put on flesh, died for us, that our sins would be paid for, rose from the grave, defeating sin, death, and Satan, and now reigns victoriously. That is a story where we can build our trust on, that this is who Jesus is, this is us coming to faith, part of Part of following Jesus is trusting Him. When I tell you that we have to turn away from the way we have been living, repenting, we have to repent, we have to stop trusting the way we have been living. We have to turn in faith to trust Jesus, His death, and His resurrection. It is trust, it is faith. We acknowledge that faith and that trust through baptism, being buried with Jesus, coming up out of the grave like Jesus. The trust is built in the past. And then every single one of us in this room probably have moments where our trust is confirmed. This is what God did for me. 
And in this moment, right now, this is what God is doing for me. And because of what God has done, because of what God is doing, we can anticipate trust in the future. Don't forget that the Israelites were literally just beginning this journey. I mean, I know we've talked about grumbling and, and we're wrestling with this. Man, I hope I don't grumble like the Israelites. But like, you get out of captivity, out of slavery, and immediately you don't have water to drink. You don't have food to eat. You come up against an enemy, and it's like, God, are you wanting us to go where you promised? This is why this is so important. Because just because you come up against the enemy, just because you come up against obstacles in your life, whether it's in the beginning, middle, or end of your story, doesn't mean that the Lord is not faithful. It doesn't mean that the Lord is not good. It doesn't mean that you can't trust Him. The Israelites, they experience that same thing. They experienced immediately coming out of slavery, captivity, obstacles, enemies. Doesn't mean the Lord wasn't fighting for them. The same is true for us. Our Lord is real. Again, go back to Ephesians 6, verse 10. This again is that passage where Paul's talking about spiritual warfare. And what does he say? Finally be strong in who? The Lord. Not finally be strong in yourself, not finally be strong in your tactics, not finally be strong in your weapons, finally be strong in the, and in the strength of his might. Because who's fighting for us? The Lord. It's the Lord who is fighting this battle. It's the Lord who's fighting this war. It's the Lord who's fighting against our enemy. God tells us just to trust him, to be faithful. Again, 1 Peter chapter 5, reading just a little bit farther than we just read. And after you have suffered a little while, do you notice what Peter acknowledges? This is like what we don't want to read. This, this verse would be incredible if you just cut the first part of it. Let me just cut that out. Why do we have to suffer? Peter acknowledges that in battle, there will be suffering. God doesn't necessarily always save us from suffering. It's the world that we live in. God uses that suffering to do something in our hearts and in our lives. But this, this is what Paul, uh, Peter says. The God of all grace, not you, not your weapons, not your tactics, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself do what? restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The enemy is real, but our Lord is real. This is what God is going to do for us. Notice what Peter does here. He compares and contrasts. There is a suffering that we experience in this moment, but that is contrasted with what? Eternal glory in Christ. The reason we have the eternal glory in Christ is not us. It's the Lord. It's what He's done for us. 
So we acknowledge our enemy. We trust the Lord. Number three, I think we can learn from this passage, we're to strengthen one another. Yes, the Lord fights on our behalf, but he uses us in that battle. Look at what happens in verses 12 through 13 of Exodus chapter 17. Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Naturally, Moses' body and arms grew tired. Right? I mean, I'm just telling you, if you've never held your hands up like this for an extended period of time, it does not take long for your arms to get heavy. And so naturally, Moses is standing there holding his arms up. He's beginning to grow weary. So Aaron, his brother, the high priest, and her held up his hands so that the people of Israel could win the battle. If our enemy is real, if our Lord is real, our community is real. The life of a Christian is never meant to be lived in isolation. And I'm amazed at how many stories, this is one story among probably thousands that I could take you to in Scripture and show you where Christians are not called to live life in isolation. We desperately need one another. Paul says it like this in Galatians 6 too, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is not just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but it is love your neighbor as yourself. At the end of the Gospel of John, he says, listen, a new commandment I give to you that you what? You love one another. The way in which you and I, we demonstrate that love, we fulfill that commandment is we bear one another's burdens it was crazy we were at our resort this is the first time rachel and i have been to an all-inclusive resort right and i'm like they were like do you want us to carry your bags no i mean i'll carry my bags right i'm, I'm an able-bodied human right and then but like as soon as they see you carrying their bags they're like snatching them from your hands like no you're not allowed to carry your own bags this should be the christian life like there, there are times that some of us are carrying way too much baggage. And we literally are fatigued and cannot carry another thing. And the imagery, the language that Paul uses is like literally your baggage is your burdens. Let me bear your burden. Moses his burden was holding his physical hands up. Aaron and her, the way that he, they bared Moses' burdens was by holding up his arms. As followers of Jesus, we need that kind of community sometimes. There are going to be moments in life when you have burdens that you can't carry and you need somebody else to come in and vice versa. There are going to be moments when your burdens are actually light, but your brother or your sister's burdens are heavy. And because your burdens are light, guess what you can do? You can pick up another bag. So we talk so much about the way that we facilitate community at Vintage. 
whether it's a V group, whether it's a formation group, these are not perfect. And they don't work, by the way, unless you are intentional with them. You can be surrounded by people all of your life and no one know that you have a burden. You have to be in community first and then you have to share the burden. You have to talk about the burden. Other people have to be willing to say, listen, I want to help carry that burden. That's the power of community. When we talk about our V groups, they're small groups of 10 to 20 that meet throughout our city for transformation, connection, and multiplication. Our, our formation groups are gender-specific groups of three to five that meet regularly for the purpose of focused discipleship, spiritual growth. This is, this is the power of community. These are just ways for us to be intentional. Because if you're not intentional, community's not going to work. You have to surround yourself with other people, and then you have to be intentional with those people. Let me ask you this question. Who do you have in your life right now that could hold up your hands? Do you have the one, two, or three people that you know if you called, they would hold your hands up? And then whose hands could you hold up? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, number one, that's being a part of the church. That's the power of community. But then you need to have those people that you know that you can call and they know that they can call you. The Christian life is not an individual exercise. It's not. Lastly, we acknowledge that we have an enemy. We trust. We trust the Lord we embrace that community and one another. Lastly, we remember the Lord's victories. Look at verses 14 through 16. They had fought this fight and they had won against Amalek. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Israel was to remember this victory. And I mean, remember how important this victory is. This is the first time that they had come up against a physical enemy. And how many more times are they going to come up against a physical enemy? I mean, if you go and read the book of Numbers, you are going to see them battling countless enemies. They needed to remember what God had done on their behalf. So the victory was to be written and told. Why? Why remember the Lord's victory? Number one, this is important for you and I, I think, faith. We already talked about that. We talked about how trust is built in the past. It's confirmed in the present. It's anticipated in the future. They needed to remember all of these things because this wasn't going to be, as I shared, the last battle. This wasn't going to be the most difficult moment in their journey. But number two, this was an opportunity to worship. That as they remembered his victory, as they celebrated the Lord's victory, they were able to praise him for who he is and what he had done. For you and I, this is a reminder that his victories are real. I know that there are moments in life 
when it appears like you are getting more L's than W's, right? Like, man, I am on a losing streak right now, right? Those are tough, tough moments. It's a lot easier in life when you're seeing a lot more wins than you are losses. But what helps us in this journey is to remember that his victory is truly real. Right? Battles are going to come. You might have heard this and it's kind of cliche, but it's true. You're going to lose battles and you're going to win battles. But whether you lose or win a battle doesn't matter when you know the war has already been won. Like, if you know that you've won the war and you lose a battle, you're like, eh, I mean, yeah, that wasn't fun, right? I don't like to lose a battle. But I already know that the war has been won, so I'm okay. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us about the gospel. I mean, when the, when the, when the disciples saw that Jesus had been crucified, they thought all hope was lost. That like not only the battle had been lost, but the war had been lost. But when Jesus rose from the grave, every single thing changed. Everything. Because now they understood his death in a completely different light. That it wasn't that the war had been lost or that even the battle had been lost, but actually through his death, the war had been won. And that through his resurrection, the war had been won. That's the reality that we live in. Yeah, we need to acknowledge we have an enemy and that we're battling the enemy and that there's battles we're going to win and there's battles we're going to lose. But we also have to acknowledge that his victories over the war are real. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This entire passage is about the resurrection. And he says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Verse 57. But thanks be to God, the Lord, the one who fought on behalf of the Israelites, defeating the Amalekites, who gives us the what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen. I know that sometimes the battles you're losing don't feel like they're all that connected to this. But what I want you to understand and what I want you to recognize is that every battle you win and lose is connected to this war. And you need to be reminded that the victory that Jesus has given us in his death and resurrection is real. 
It's something that we can hang our hats on. It's something that we can trust in. It's something that we can look forward to. We remember the Lord's victory, His death and His resurrection to prepare us for what's coming, His future victory, His reign. That when you're losing the battle right now, when you're looking forward to the victory in the war, you remember that what's ultimately going to happen is what Paul says, Jesus is going to return, we're all going to be made new, and He is going to reign forever. That's the victory that we're looking forward to. We're just waiting. So our trust is built in the past. What Jesus did for us on the cross, what Jesus did for us in coming up out of that grave, our trust is confirmed right now that you and I, we have needs, we have battles that God is fighting for us. He's preparing for us. He's taking care of for us. So that we have a trust that we can anticipate in the future, trusting and believing that a day will come, maybe in our lifetime, maybe in a thousand years, who knows? That Jesus will return and he will be victorious and he will reign as king. We will be made new and life will be as it was meant to be. That is the hope that we have. That's the war that's being fought. No one wants to be in a battle. Most sane people would prefer to live in peace, right? But what a difference it makes when you know that the war has already been won. The Lord fights for His people when the enemy attacks us. Hold on to that truth this week. That when you're feeling an attack coming, when you're feeling a battle is being waged, remember that the Lord is fighting on your behalf. And the victory that you're looking for has actually already been won. We have an enemy, but we have the Lord. And we have each other. And because we have the Lord and because we have each other, we have the Lord's victory. Let's trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you, Father, that you love us, that you fight for us, that we can trust you. God, help us in the moments that are difficult, in the battles that are hard, in the moments when we're losing to remember you've already secured the victory. Help us to trust you now. Help us to lean on one another, to care for one another. And help us to trust your victory. We ask all of this in your son Jesus' name.